Well, um, I want to explain something. We're, we're going to jump over. Uh, last week, we looked at the Jerusalem Council. And we're going to jump over the end of chapter 15, as well as the very beginning of chapter 16. We'll return to those that passage after Easter. But I wanted to skip ahead to our passage today because it fits so beautifully with Palm Sunday, as well as the passage that comes out of today's passage. So you could call it part two. Really, really fits beautifully with Easter. So I wanted to, I had planned for, for a few weeks now to for that to line up like that. And it's too bad we have to skip ahead, but we'll we'll get back to that. There's, there's good stuff there too. Um, but just in case you're wondering, hey, did he forget about that? No, I didn't forget. We'll get back to it. Uh, just so you know. Um, so today, this is what we're doing. Women, wealth, and responding to God as uh, Paul and his companions begin evangelizing Philippi. An explanation, though. I know that this title is a truly terrible one. That is a bad title. You guys have no idea how much mental energy, like a ridiculously more mental energy than than it deserves, trying to come up every week with a snappy, clever title for my sermons. It captures both the essence of the story and the purpose of the story together. I work hard at it. This week's sermon is a dud. It, this, not the sermon. Well, maybe the sermon, I don't know. <laughs> this week's sermon title is a dud, and I, I know it. It sounds like the name of a terrible biography about some popular actor written by an author desperate to convince himself that his Hollywood hero has any spiritual depth at all. It's like, women, wealth, and responding to God. The untold story of Jim Carrey. <laughs> Actually, to be honest, I'd probably read that. But still, it's a really lame title. And yet, though I had the power to choose a different one, I kept it. Our passages over the next two weeks of the Easter season are very closely tied together, as our author, Luke, introduces us to three very different people in the Roman colony of Philippi. Each of these three people interacts in some way with the saving power of Jesus Christ um, through his evangelizing servants, including Paul. We will look at the stories of the first two of these three fascinating Philippians uh, this morning. And there are three things that unite them intrinsically, and they are, you guessed it, they are both women, that's right, um, and they are both tied in some way to, that's right, wealth. And they both offer rich case studies in how human beings, you got it, respond to God. <laughs> so there's the connections. There are lessons and warnings, both, in our passage today. And they're just as relevant now as they were 2,000 years ago when, when Luke jotted them down. Um, finally, at the end, I hope to tie this passage from Acts with the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in his final week in what we call Palm Sunday, um, which we're commemorating today. So these, again, there's three characters that interact with Paul and his companions who interact with God and his salvation. We're going to look at the first two today. The third we'll look at next week. At Easter, And so without further ado, let's meet a woman who serves as a role model for all believers um, in verses 11 to 15. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. 
when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Normally at this point in the sermon, I would point to the big map omissions because there's all those sailing details uh, to enlighten you on the finer geographical points of Paul's traveling. But my my ever-loving wife made it clear that I was to begin trimming minutes off the sermon. And so... So I've decided to forego the map until after Easter, when we'll really look at the finer travel details of this, which is Paul's second missionary trip. The first one took him to Asia Minor, first to Cyprus, and then up into Asia Minor, uh, Pisidian, Antioch, Lystra, Derby. Um, we talked about that for about a month or so. And now this is the kickoff of, of missions trip two. But suffice it to say that Paul and his company have ended up in Philippi of Macedonia, which is in modern-day Greece and Bulgaria as opposed to modern-day Turkey, where he and Barnabas had evangelized Gentiles on their first ministry tour. Oh, whoops, look, there's the big map of missions. Oh, sorry, Ange. So they sail out from Troas across the Aegean Sea to Neapolis, and then they end up in Philippi. So this is where they were, chapters 13, 14, in this area. Some of these cities will be familiar. And now they sail across to Philippi. They're in Europe now. For the first time, the gospel's taken to Europe. With Paul, uh, with him are three companions who each joined him at different times in the passage that we skipped over, the end of chapter 15, beginning of chapter 16. They all join at different times, and we'll discuss them at greater length when we return to that passage after Easter. But these men included one fellow Jew, Silas, who we've met. Silas was the one who accompanied Paul as they distributed the, the letter from the Jerusalem Council to the Gentile churches in and around Antioch and Asia Minor. Silas will become one of Paul's go-to traveling buddies throughout the rest of Acts. So you'll hear a lot about Silas. Also joining this star-studded evangelism party are two men with prominent New Testament books named after them. First, Timothy, who is half Jewish, half Gentile. And our author, Luke, is now in the picture, which explains why you may have noticed a distinct shift in pronouns in our passage. It is no longer they who sail the Aegean Sea, but we who sail the Aegean Sea. It isn't them who Lydia invites and persuades to experience hospitality. It's us that experiences hospitality. Luke has inserted himself, not in a showy way. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, guys, I joined Paul now. He just changes the the pronouns a little bit. And so Luke is no longer recording other people's eyewitness accounts of what they've seen and heard the Holy Spirit do. Now Luke is right there in Philippi with them. These are firsthand accounts. And Philippi... Philippi was very different from any of the other places that that Paul had visited on his missions journeys. Verse 12 tells us that Philippi was a Roman colony, which essentially means that it was a Roman military outpost that governed themselves as sort of a mini Rome. All the cities that that Paul had been to in Asia Minor, they were Roman colonies, Roman cities as well. Rome controlled all that area, obviously. But they didn't govern themselves like Rome governed itself. Philippi did. Philippi prided itself as a mini Rome Um, It was a tough, no-nonsense town filled with soldiers both active and retired. Um, There was a strong sense of Roman rule. One commentary I read said that there was probably the the emperor cult was strong in Philippi, meaning they worshipped emperor literally as god, um, more predominantly than, say, the Greek gods or the Roman gods or or the god of Israel. So Philippi was thoroughly Roman. It was a very... And we see, as the story progresses, we see very Roman things happening. And more importantly, 
Unlike Pisidian Antioch or any of the other places that, that Paul had traveled in Asia Minor, unlike any of those places, Philippi had almost no Jewish population. Almost no Jews lived in Philippi. To form a synagogue in the ancient Roman world, you needed a quorum of at least 10 Jewish men. If you had 10 Jewish men, you could officially start a synagogue. The fact that Paul was unable on the Sabbath day to meet and teach at a synagogue, and that was his customary practice. That's what he did in Cyprus. First place he goes to, goes to a synagogue. When he, get, when he lands in Asia Minor, first place he goes to in all those cities, always a synagogue. He had, been, he had created a sensation in each of these synagogues, right? He can't do that in Philippi. There is no synagogue. Instead, he goes down to the river. He's in uncharted territory. There aren't even 10, not even 10 Jewish men in Philippi, a city of about 10,000, at least 10,000. This was uncharted territory for Paul and his company. But, as is often the case, where you can't find any good faithful men, you can almost always find some good faithful women. Heading to the river, located just off the busy road, the main road that headed towards Rome, that's exactly who the missionaries found, a bunch of faithful women. Ignoring, as Jesus did, the misogynistic taboo of a male teacher sitting down and teaching women, uh, Jesus ignored that all the time. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they do the same. They sit down and begin, begin telling these women the story of Jesus Christ and his salvation. They tell these hardworking and underappreciated citizens stories of Jesus healing women, teaching women, valuing women, and including women. They told wealthy businesswoman and lowly slave girl alike about the power and glory and majesty of God contained in human form, but expressed in a servant-like fashion in order to return humanity back to the Father. They relayed the unifying and liberating truth that in Jesus there is no Jew or Gentile, there is no slave nor free, there is no male nor female, there are only fellow servants of the good and great King Jesus. And it was effective. One prominent member of this group of women listened intently to every word until, like the man sharing the message himself, her eyes were suddenly opened by the Lord herself, and she could see and understand. Her name was Lydia. And Lydia was history's very first European convert to the gospel. In all of Europe, which became within a couple centuries the cent- central location for Christianity in all the world, the first European convert was a woman named Lydia. She is a role model to each of us, male and female alike, for reasons that I'll get to uh, soon. Her name may not have actually been Lydia. This kind of blew my mind. It may have been her trade name, since scripture tells us that she's from Thyatira, which was formerly known as Lydia. Lydia was a place. Um, and that place had been renowned for centuries, even by the time of Acts, uh, for its merchants in purple cloth. They were really good at taking this special root, the matter root, and crushing it up to make dye to make purple cloth. That's what that area was renowned for. So to call herself Lydia was to identify herself with her region's greatest financial asset, which is why Edmonton's pro hockey team is the Oilers, because Northern Alberta is known for its petroleum production. It's why Calgary has the Stampeders, because of its rich history with rodeos and ranching. It's why Westlock hosts the Alberta Senior Citizen Games, because our greatest resource is old people. And so like Lydia, like Lydia, even today, We identify with our hometown's economic assets. And the region of Lydia was so well known for its purple dye that it even had a guild established for purple dye merchants that lasted until the 19th century, and they called themselves the Purpurarii. 
And if that's not the most fun word you'll hear this month, then you're lying to yourself. Go ahead and say it. Perperarii. What a great word. Um, it has nothing to do with anything. It's just really fun to say perperarii. So I wanted you to join in that fun. Actually, none of that's important. Whether her name was actually Lydia or if it's the place, what her job was, what the region of Lydia was known for, it's not important. What's important is her response to the life-changing message that Jesus is Lord. Her response to this message was fourfold. Initially, she responded by simply listening. That's always the first response. Um, A willingness to give this message a chance, to not dismiss it out of hand immediately, but to actually hear what the message bringer has to say. It's a willingness to set aside social, religious, economic, and in Lydia's case, gender preconceptions to allow truth to seep into the heart. Many women in Jesus' day would have seen themselves as unworthy to receive that message. They would have excluded themselves on principle because they were women, not Lydia. In fact, the people of, the women of Macedonia had an independent streak that they were renowned for. They were fiercely independent, and we see that in Lydia too, which is great. They don't need no man. They, they're doing it themselves. Um, but a willingness to set aside whatever barrier you have, whether it's social, economic, bias, whatever it is, a willingness to set it aside and really listen to the message is always the first step. And Lydia is a hero because she does that, first of all. But it's not the most important step. Anybody can hear something. To really listen means you take it a step further. And the next step that Lydia undergoes um, is actually a step that we have no control over whatsoever, believe it or not. And that is the step of accepting Jesus through miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit. Luke wants to make it clear That salvation is not a one-way street. It's not something we do for ourselves. It always, always, I mean, it obviously involves Jesus because he's the one who saved us. But even the process of coming to him is guided and directed by the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus himself. Let me read what it says here. Um, She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The Lord did that. She participated. She sat and listened. She had a willingness, an openness to accept, but it's the Holy Spirit who does that work in us. We have to give him credit for that. I have no insight for you as to why this step often gets missed by so many people. Lots of people hear the message of Jesus, but not everybody accepts it. And I don't know why, and I wrestle with it just like you do. Um, So I have no insight other than to say perhaps they never got past the first step of truly listening in the first place. And perhaps they were not fully ready and prepared and willing for the Holy Spirit to accomplish the second step. I know that that's been true of me at different times. There's things that God has done and tried to tell me to do that I've been closed off to, that I have not accepted. So we must be willing to allow this crucial second step to occur. Otherwise, it never can. We have to accept the Holy Spirit's work in us. Lydia was willing to accept, and the Spirit responded. Her third step is similarly crucial, and that is the step of submission and obedience. For Lydia, this step involved immediate baptism. Good thing there was a river handy. Um, And throughout Acts, like, when somebody tells me they want to get baptized, like, Tara a few years ago, when she said she wanted to get baptized, I didn't just rate that Sunday do it, did I, Tara? There was a process. We had meetings. We talked about it, what it meant for her, why she chose to do it. Yellow, we did the same thing. Um, And that's intentional, and that's good, I think. But in Acts, that's not how it goes. Somebody hears the message, they say, hey, why don't I get baptized? And whether it's Paul or Philip or whoever's doing the baptizing says, yes, 
Let's do it. Baptized. Done. It's immediate, which represented both a purification and a rebirth, which is what baptism represents. It's a purifying ritual, being made clean and acceptable, even though Jesus' blood does that. But more than that, it's like a rebirth. You are buried in the water, and you're raised to a new life in Jesus. You were reborn someone new. Lydia's household was baptized with her, which would include her servants and her family members, but she probably wasn't married. There's no husband mentioned of, and they almost certainly would have mentioned a husband if there was one, given the, the climate of the time. So her, I don't know if it's, she had kids. I don't know if she had siblings. Whoever it was, though, she's baptized along with her household. <laughs> Baptism is a sacred thing. Something I believe all disciples are called to in response to salvation. And if it's something you'd like to pursue and you haven't done so yet, feel free to, to catch me after service and talk about it. That, it's an important conversation to have if you haven't had it. But baptism is just one of many acts of submission and obedience. But like all other such acts, communion, prayer, worship, fellowship, tithing, I don't know what you could probably add or take away from that list. I don't know. I'm, I'm not an expert on the, the, the requirements of salvation. These are all, all of them, baptism included, they, they come from the heart. They are not things we perform just to get them done and say we've done them. They are not the things that stamp us as marked for in in the kingdom of heaven. Nothing does that except the grace of Jesus. So they're just acts. But they are acts that need to be done with the proper heart. What is the proper heart? What is the proper attitude when approaching baptism? Well, here it is. Submission and obedience. And he himself underwent it. If anybody didn't need to be baptized ever, it's Jesus. The reason we do many of the things we do is out of submission to him, that our life is less and his will is more, and out of obedience. Like any good child, you obey your father because your father, hopefully, most of the time, knows what's best for you. In the case of God the Father, it's not supposedly, mostly, hopefully. It's definitely, certainly, absolutely knows what's best for you. So, Like all of these acts, baptism is rooted in the thoughts of a mind and the love of a heart fully offered to Jesus as a living sacrifice. That's true of anything we do as believers. Any act we commit, any sacrament, any any word we speak, anything is done out of submission and obedience to his will. Lydia's obedience and submission were expressed through baptism, but it wasn't a one-time thing. You don't submit one time. You don't obey one time and then you're good, you're covered, you're done. Obviously, it was a lifelong choice with implications on her every thought, every word, and every deed. Any questions about that? At this point, uh, Sharon asked a really great question. How did Lydia ever find out about the God of Israel in the first place? Good question. Um, She was from Thyatira, and Thyatira, they they almost certainly had a synagogue. So she was what's called a God-fearer, and we've met God-fearers throughout Acts. God-fearers are Gentiles who show up at the synagogue in the balcony because they're not they're not allowed in they're not they're just witnesses to the god of israel they unless they get circumcised and fully fully commit to judaism then they're called god fears so that's just a gentile who respects the god of israel and perhaps shapes their life after the commandments of the god of israel so she wasn't jewish she was gentile fully gentile but a gentile who had an underlying respect for god does that make sense yeah yeah she obviously worshipped God enough to gather people together in a place devoted to the worship of God. In this case, not a synagogue, but the river. 
And here Trish mentioned that it must have been pretty common to meet by a river because Paul knew right where to go. Yeah, yeah, it was common enough that Paul, that's the first place he went. Hey, there's no synagogue here. Where should I go? Well, obviously I'll go to the river. The river because that was where the purification rites that Jews had to undergo for worship could be accomplished at a river. It's like when I do camp in the summer, we always have the last day we, in the morning we go down to the river because it's beautiful. It's, it's easier to, to meet God, I think, in a place like that than in a busy marketplace or someone's house often. But, and here Dennis mentions how the women were the real laborers in the family who did the hard work and most of that work happened at the river, washing laundry and collecting, collecting water for drinking and cleaning. That's right. That's right. Yeah. They do a lot of their work there. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. The acoustics on a bank. Yeah. That's a good point too. Um, yeah. Great questions. I'm glad I read my commentaries and had a <laughs> passable answer for you because those are really good questions. And that brings us to our uh, Lydia's fourth response. First, she listened. Then uh, she allowed the spirit to go to work and she accepted what she heard. And then she submitted and obeyed. And finally, in verse 15, she gets to work. She responds to Christ's love by immediately, immediately extending love to those around her in acts of service. That's what the last one is, acts of service. For Lydia, this act of loving service took the form of hospitality, which was the greatest of all practical displays of love Excuse me, in the ancient Near East. It took some convincing for the apostles to actually accept that hospitality, probably less because she's a Gentile. We know for Paul that doesn't matter. He'll eat with any Gentile. He doesn't care. So it's not that she's a Gentile. It's probably that she's a single woman. And although the dietary restrictions didn't have any sway over Paul, sexual propriety and decency and being above reproach absolutely did hold sway for Paul. And so he was probably reluctant because of how it might look. A bunch of men going to hang out the home of a single woman. But eventually, it took some convincing, but the men accepted her invitation. Her home, as we find out later in verse 40 of the same chapter, her, her home would become the hub for Christians in Philippi. In fact, when Paul wrote his letter to Philippians, it's incredibly likely that, that letter, the first place that letter went to was Lydia's house. So that's really cool. So those are the four steps that made this Gentile woman a role model for anyone who wishes to accept Jesus as Lord. Um, and they are, again, listen, acceptance, submit, and serve. L-A-S-S. Lass. How fitting that it was a heroic lass who taught us all of this. I don't know if that's cheesy or profound. It's both. Moreover, Lydia was clearly a woman of some degree of wealth. Remember, it's women, wealth, and responding to God. She was a woman with some degree of wealth. She was well-known as a businesswoman. She had a reputation, um, clearly, in that area. And she had a house big enough to host many people. But she did not allow her wealth to become a barrier to knowing, following, and loving Jesus as Lord. In fact, through hospitality, her wealth became a tool she could utilize in service to him, which is a good lesson for any of us to use what we have to, to aid and assist workers in the kingdom of God is always good. But she didn't let her wealth become a barrier to knowing and following God, as so many people, even in the Gospels, have done. In fact, next we'll read a story about a very different female, as well as a very different response to wealth from a violent group of Gentiles. So let's read verses 16 to 24. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, that's the river, by the way, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. 
This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept us up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon hearing such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. We'll stop there. Don't read further. That's for next week. Stop it. Lois, I see you reading. Knock it off. (laughs) This young girl represents the worst tendency of humanity. I just, anytime I see this, I bristle and I hate it. And I, I know that you do too. And that's the tendency to exploit others in order to further your own fortunes, your own fame, or your own power. To use other people as a tool for you to, be get, to, to get what you want is the most despicable thing humans do. It takes a lot of shapes and a lot of forms, but it's, it's awful every time. And I'm guilty of doing it too. A great many people would pay her owners a great deal of money for her to tell them their futures. She was a very, very lucrative asset to her handlers. However, the thing that made her so lucrative to her exploiters was the thing that exerted tremendously evil control over her thoughts, her speech, and her entire life. They got rich. They got rich off of her being possessed by a demon. And if that's not despicable, I don't know what is. I'll tell you what it is. How about if she gets freed from that demon, and instead of celebrating, you throw the people who freed her into prison to have them beaten, arrested, and hopefully murdered? That's, that's maybe more despicable. But upon the arrival of Paul and company, the evil inside her wished to pronounce, likely with a tone of mockery rather than worship, that salvation had arrived from these servants of the Most High God. Jesus encountered this kind of thing regularly in the Gospels. When we studied Luke, we saw a few stories like this where he's wandering around and some person possessed by an evil spirit will start proclaiming him as the son of God. You'd think that he'd be cool with it. You'd think he'd be cool with anybody announcing him as son of God because, you know, that's what he is. Just like you'd think Paul would be cool with having a fortune teller announce an entire city that he comes bearing salvation to, the, to, to Philippi. You'd think he'd be okay with that. However, pronouncements rooted in evil do little to make good disciples especially when it's done in mockery, especially when it's done at the exploitation of someone innocent. Uh, you can say the right thing for the wrong reason. And that's what's, that's what's happening here. And so as Jesus had before him, Paul finally grows weary of this constant demonic harassment. In fact, it says it troubled him, which is a word that it's, it's actually a military word that it, it vexed him and plagued him and he didn't know how to conquer it, except he did know how to conquer it. Um, He turns and demands in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Savior, that the evil forces controlling the girl come out. And as soon as he pronounces it, her eyes clear up, her behavior softens, and her entire demeanor changes. And her handlers know immediately what's happened. I'm not sure why he waited days and days to do it. If he knew this was a mocking demon and not a genuine pronouncement, I'm not sure why he waited to do it. But 
Perhaps he waited because Paul anticipated the exact response that would it, it would eventually elicit, and that is a riotous uproar from the people of Philippi. And frankly, you'd be a little ticked too if your means of local fame and easy money was stripped of you by some wandering band of religious radicals. You might be a little upset as well. He hadn't just exercised a demon, he had exercised their means of wealth. And so Paul, he had launched an attack, not against the people of Philippi, against the demonic forces that happened to be in Philippi at the time. He launches an attack, but these former soldiers of this great Roman colony of Philippi launch a counterattack immediately against this interloping apostle. Immediately, you can see Luke drawing up contrast between Lydia and the possessed girl. Lydia's encounter with God was quiet, personal, peaceful, and led to wealth being used in service to Jesus. With the servant girl, however, the encounter was public, it was violent, and the loss of wealth was the primary reason why servants of Jesus are beaten and persecuted. It's not the first time nor the last that those bearing the message of Jesus' salvation are opposed by Gentiles, not for theological reasons, but for crassly economic reasons. They, they don't care if, what the message has to say about actual salvation, about worshiping the one true God. They just know that they've lost a profit margin. And that's when they, throughout Acts, that's the only time Gentiles react violently to the message of salvation. It's when their money is at stake. What does that tell you about human nature? I wish we knew. It would be really interesting to me to know what happened to this little slave girl afterwards. We, we don't know anything. We, with the demon exercise, she became devalued property for her owners, um, meaning she probably returned to scrubbing floors and making meals and whatever lowly tasks a household servant would perform. I like to think that, because slaves were allowed to commit their lives to Jesus, um, occasionally their masters allowed them to go and worship. Doesn't seem like that's what would have happened here, which is tragic and perhaps even more tragic than the demonic possession is having been freed from it and not being allowed to follow that freedom. But we don't know. We don't know if her encounter with the Most High God led to her own salvation, but we do know for sure that it led to some serious oppression for the two Jewish members of the four-man evangelism team. Timothy and Luke, as Gentiles, everybody would have assumed that they were Roman citizens. Um, They looked and sounded and behaved as non-Jews, and so they were left alone, Timothy and Luke. It's Paul and Silas who bear the brunt of the oppression. As we'll see next week, Paul and Silas were actually Roman citizens, but nobody gave them a chance to proclaim that and defend themselves. Um, their punishment without trial was illegal. You were not allowed to throw to beat someone and throw them in jail if they were a Roman so- citizen without a trial. Paul and Silas were not granted that courtesy. They were rounded up by the, the angry mob who beat them and dragged them to the town square to meet with the magistrates immediately. Beat them so handily, apparently, that Paul couldn't even speak up and say, no, I'm a citizen. The charges against Paul and Silas were trumped up. You couldn't be arrested for exercising a demon in any part of the Roman world. There was no law against that. But the angry slave owners appealed to what they knew the magistrates needed to hear. A, they were clearly causing a disturbance in the city. When the magistrates sitting on their, it's called the bima, in the town square, their place of judgment, as they look across the town square, they see this uproar. They see this fervor. They see this, this riot happening. And they, they see this crowd dragging these two men they don't know towards them. So they know obviously something, there's obviously a disturbance. And in the Roman world, the last thing a magistrate of a Roman colony wanted was an uproar. Because if Rome got word that you didn't quash it immediately, you were quashed immediately. You were deposed of, executed, 
And so they had to do something about it. And so the slave owners appealed to that, first of all. And B, they say that they were Jews, which the attitude of Romans was turning against already. It's still over a decade until um, Jerusalem would be crushed by the Romans. But already, by this day, Claudius had started kicking Jews out of Rome. Anti-Semitism in Europe runs deep, very deep. And already Jews were experiencing that oppression. And so in Philippi, if Rome's kicking out Jews, you better believe this colony of Philippi would start thinking, maybe it's acceptable if we do it too. And so the accusers are very clear that these, these men who aren't like us, they're Jews. They do that for a reason. And C, they were propagating unlawful religious practices. Now, strictly speaking, it was not, it was not illegal, but only frowned on for Jews to try to convert Gentiles. There was no law against it. But the magistrates didn't need to examine further. They could see the uproar that these Jews had caused. And as those charged by Rome with preserving the peace, they needed to go along with it. And so the magistrates order um, the lictors, they're called, to step down and take it from there. By the way, who else does this sound like? Arrested for causing a disturbance. He is Jew, uh, propagating unlawful religious practices. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like any of God's servants who are persecuted in the book of Acts. So, the magistrates ordered the lictors to step down and take them from there. The lictors, they're like a cross between a security guard and an executioner. They carried with them this bundle of sticks, which doesn't sound intimidating, but in the middle of the sticks was an axe. This bundle of sticks was called the fasces et secures in Latin. And does that sound familiar? Fasces? That's where the brutal Italian political party got the name fascist from. That was their symbol, was this rod of sticks that the Roman world used to suppress uprisers fascists comes from these lictors from the sticks that they carried so you better believe that these aren't gentlemen who are going to escort paul and silas kindly to prison in fact what they did the lictors they took the axe out they didn't that was only for executions they took the axe out and so they took these sticks put paul and silas in the town square ripped off all their clothes and as they did so you would see the scars from the beatings that paul had gotten in chapters 13 and 14 fairly fresh wounds only a year or two old but definitely scarred up, and they just went to town, wailing and wailing and wailing on their backs until they buckled. They weren't, the intention wasn't to kill them, the intention was to torture them, to punish them. So that's exactly what happened. It was not Paul's last encounter with the lictors beating sticks. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says he was beaten with rods three times, three different times. This is just the first of those three, or possibly the second. He may have been beaten with rods in Pisidian Antioch too. That's above and beyond the stonings, imprisonment that Paul endured, he endured a lot. After the beating, Paul and Silas were taken to the maximum security portion of the prison, which was likely a bunch of iron bars that led to a cave in iron bars, under the watch of a man, a very fascinating man, who we'll discuss more at length next week, the jailer. But in the innermost portion of the prison, they were placed with their legs in a cruel kind of stalks that forced their legs apart uh, in a painful way. They are backs, which were at this point raw and bloody and bare, made lying down terribly painful. And so when you sat up in this forced position, that was also excruciating and it led to cramping. And so no matter what position they held, they were in agony all night. Excruciating. And so there they waited side by side, Paul and Silas, agonizing, freezing in a cavernous cell with no food or water or pain relief of any kind, lying in their own blood and excrement, Considering again the cost and glory of discipleship. As we'll see next week, 
Paul and Silas would respond to all of this with joy. They would respond with joy, which is mind-blowing. But for now, they have undergone extreme torment and torture for the crime of what? Freeing a child from demonic bondage to evil. That's their crime. And that's why I wanted this passage for Palm Sunday. In both the story of Lydia's conversion and the slave girl, I see a lot of Palm Sunday. The whole story is a beautiful reflection of what the week before Easter represents. Lydia is like the woman in Matthew 26, we we read about her a couple weeks ago, who anoints Jesus with lavish perfume. Both Lydia and this woman in Matthew 26 are women who use their wealth to respond to the saving grace of Jesus with acts of service. One performs the service of preparing his body for burial, which is what Jesus says of her act of pouring the, the rich perfume all over him. He says, she's preparing me for burial. That's an act of service. The other, Lydia, performs the service of hospitality for those who proclaim his name. So both women, I, I see a similarity in there. But in Paul and Silas, I see even more direct connections to Palm Sunday. As Jesus entered Jerusalem in the week before his death, the people shouted hosannas to him, proclaiming him as son of David and the one who comes in the name of the Lord, basically the Messiah, the Savior. That's what they proclaimed of him. Words of high praise that were spoken falsely by lips that did not ultimately offer him any allegiance whatsoever. Within a week, those same proclaimers were yelling, crucify him. And that reminds me of the demon possessing the servant girl. Both the crowds shouting hosannas and the demon-possessed servant girl were shouting hollow words of praise that were robbed of their power by the unfaithfulness inherent within those who said them. Both, again, offered the right words for the wrong reasons. And we can be guilty of doing the same. It's something we need to guard ourselves against. And finally, both Palm Sunday and Acts 16 feature our heroes entering a city victorious and proclaiming true peace. Paul is welcomed into the city immediately, and he finds success in his mission immediately through Lydia and the women at the river. He comes into this city successful, victorious, proclaiming peace. Eventually, however, they find themselves at the merciless hands of Gentiles who have a wickedly misplaced idea of how keeping the peace is accomplished. They keep the peace like Romans keep the peace, keep the peace through merciless torture and trials devoid of justice. That's not how you keep peace. That's not how you make peace. Paul and Silas brought salvation to those controlled and exploited by evil. and Because of it, we're oppressed. Jesus brings exactly the same gift to us. And when he brought it to Jerusalem in that final week, he was oppressed more greatly than any other person's ever been oppressed. For that, he received a bloody cross, a mocking crown, and a shameful fate. So, Acts 16, like Palm Sunday, is a call to respond properly to the salvation offered to us by Jesus himself. Will we be like our hero Lydia, who demonstrated last <laughs> listening, acceptance, submission, and service? Will we respond in that way, like Lydia the hero? Will we respond like Lydia, who made Jesus lord over her wealth, using it to serve others through hospitality? Or will we be like the slave owners, constantly exploiting others for our own personal gain, unwilling and unable to see the arrival of salvation because we're blinded by our own greed and selfishness? Will we walk with our risen and glorified king, or will we keep him on the cross where he's conveniently out of the way so we can be lord of our own lives? Will we keep bloodying him up with our words and actions, or will we follow him in word and action, even when it means getting bloodied up ourselves, like Paul and Silas? We have to properly respond to the salvation offered to us. 
And in the end, I hope that it's women, wealth, and responding to God, the untold story of your name here. Let's pray. No, check that. Not untold story. You should make it a told story. Yeah, sorry. That was the wrong thing. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the salvation that you offer, uh, even to us. I pray that we would respond as Lydia does, that we would listen to your truth, that we would accept it through your power, Holy Spirit, that we would submit and obey you, Jesus, and that we would then turn our lives over to you in service to you as King and Lord and Master. I pray that we would sacrifice whatever we need to sacrifice to make you Lord, whether that's our wealth, whether that's our prestige, whether that's our reputation, whatever we need to set aside to be better followers of you, I pray that we, like Lydia, would do that, that we would turn things over in service to you, whatever we have, whoever we are. I thank you for the example of Paul and Silas willing to be beaten cruelly and oppressed unfairly for your name. I pray that when we are... um, feeling abused and oppressed, that we would turn to you for hope, that we would turn to you in joy, that we would be strengthened to serve you even greater. I pray that we would be agents of releasing people from bondage to sin and evil, just like Paul and Silas were, and that we would never give up no matter what the world throws at us. I thank you for the women in these stories and the heroes that they are. I thank you that we can learn from their example of how to respond to you properly, and I pray we would do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This week's sermon is a dud. It, this, not the sermon. Well, maybe the sermon, I don't know. 